Welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doak. In this episode, we discuss Tom's design of Streamsong Blue and the unique nature of the project. I was able to record this podcast at Streamsong and capture some great footage while at the resort. I would recommend checking out the podcast on the website for an enhanced listening and viewing experience. Thanks for all the support and listening to the podcast. Here's episode four of The Yoke with Doak. Famously candid dope doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doke. Today, we are going to discuss uh, one of Tom's solo designs, Streamsong Blue. Tom, welcome back. Thanks. And nice to actually be here at Streamsong to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, we got a good listener question to kick things off. It's from Will Bardwell. He'd like to know, when someone is playing the course for the first time, what do they need to know slash understand in order to enjoy the round the most? Well, probably the first thing for a lot of my courses, stream song is certainly not the only one, is that there's a lot of short grass around the greens. And you can get away with missing greens and have a chance to get up and down. But usually... Know, a lot of the contours are built with the idea that you're playing low shots back up onto the green. You're not taking a wedge and flopping it up there. Um, it's The turf here is a little different than Band and Dunes or Barn Boogle that uh, you almost can't hit the flop wedge up in the air. The turf there on those courses is so tight and the ground is so hard that, that only a player with great hands can do it. Uh, here... The turf is a little more forgiving. It's all Bermuda grass, but but it's still, you know, those contours were in, planned with the, in anticipation that it'd be pretty tight and fast, and and that was the way to play the shots. And you know, so you have to get you have to get comfortable with that. And Bandon, the caddies will just you know, if you keep trying to hit a wedge, the caddies will eventually take your wedge and jam it in the, the deepest recess of the bag where you can't get at it anymore. <laughs> and the caddies here are pretty good at uh, trying to steer you around shots that are a mistake here. But I think that's the biggest thing. That and, you know, there's a lot of contour in the approaches and the greens. And there's a lot of places for a ball to hit a contour and kind of veer offline from where you think it was going. And, you know, you have to be prepared for that and not get too flustered by it. I've seen some really good players get very upset here over a bad bounce or two and, you know, not not uh, give credit for the fact the previous hole they got a good bounce. Yeah. They, you know, they, they never complain when they get the good bounce. Or I've I've known people to complain about a good bounce, but you really wonder about those people. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think my dad's one of those people, actually. It's, I find that, too. Everybody always tells you about, like, well, my round could have been this had this happened. But nobody ever says, well, my round would have been this had I not, like, got this great break. That's absolutely true. It's It's got to be frustrating as an architect sometimes because, like, they only remember the times that they get the bad breaks. Well, you know... A lot of architects avoid having little crown contours in the golf course and especially around the greens because they know that and they know that they're going to get criticism for it. And I mean, it's almost literally true that for every bad bounce, another guy will get a good bounce off the same thing. And yet, you know, because nobody talks about him, you only hear the criticism. So if you're trying to avoid criticism as a designer, you, you stop putting those features in. And to me, I mean, this is a beautiful site for golf and there were some really dramatic features to it, but, um, you know, like those contours are a big part of the defense of this golf course. I mean, it's not, it's a very wide open golf course and that's the balance against that. You know, you can get around it and not lose a ball, but it's hard to score because there's a lot of those little, you know, they seem fairly random at times. Like there's just a little landmine there waiting to go off if you hit the ball in the wrong spot on the green. Um, and if you, you know, if you've never played here before, it's hard to accept that the first time. But you know, those are the kind of features. The more you come back here and get to know the place, that's what really makes it interesting to come back and keep trying to figure out a little more. That's I I found I I appreciated I played the loop one of your courses last summer, I played it again this summer and the second time around you learned, you, you learn so much and you appreciate things so much more when you get around it again. And, uh, that's, it's gotta be a tough thing with, uh, the golf profession. Uh, Brent, uh, Brendan wanted to take us back to your first impressions of the site when you, when you visit it the first time, I think it, it's a good place to jump into how this all came about. Okay, so I can't remember the years exactly. It was either 2000, I think it was 2009 that I came down here for the first time. And I met one of the clients in Tampa. And then we took a helicopter over here to have a look. And there were like three or four different pieces of ground that they wanted me to look at as potential sites for a golf course. And the original idea was that they were going to build two golf courses right away, but on two different sites that the character of them would be really different. So, you know, and we kind of hop from place to place by helicopter. They were, they were two and three miles apart, say, and, you know, this was a, uh, mining operation and you know one of them was a site that had been very recently mined and you know sometimes the access to places wasn't so easy here so the helicopter helped from that standpoint and from for seeing a bunch of things in a hurry so they took they took me to an area that was very gentle and almost flat that was an area that had all be, already been reclaimed from the mining you know, and it looked like you could build like a traditional parkland course, but a fairly flat one. Um, they took me to this raw open site that they had just torn up and it was 
really, really, I mean, you would have to put it all back together and fill some things back in because they've mined stuff down pretty close to water table. Um, the last site that we looked at after the one where the golf course is now, uh, was kind of more of a nature preserve out. It was a little south of here, I think. And, you know, more wetlands and stuff, but they were skeptical about that. They thought it would take the permitting would be hard for that. And then this big, this really big site that looked like my first impression was that it looked like the sand hills of Nebraska in the center of the site. Um, we landed about where the somewhere between like the first fairway and sixth fairway of the blue course. And so that big dune that was be, that's behind the sixth green is immediately like, right in your face. Like that's what reminded me of the sand hills. It's like, God, that's a, that's a 50, 40, 50 foot high sand dune sitting out here with, with native grasses on it. Like it'd been there for a long time or like it always been there, you know, it was a remnant of the mining operation that had been sitting there for so long that it had been revegetated. You know, first the wind blew it around and shaped it. I mean, it was, it was just a big pile of sand stacked up by a big piece of equipment to start with, but the wind was on it long enough that it formed into like a, you know, it had the shape of a real sand dune and then grass sort of took it over and held that shape. Um, so we kind of drove up onto that and then, you know, right when we got up there to where my seventh tee is now, all of a sudden there's a reveal that on the backside of this sand dune, the ground drops off 80 feet into a 30 acre lake with a hundred foot sand dune on the far side of it. And I was like, holy crap, I've never seen anything like that in my life. <laughs> and, you know, I, I said to Rich Mack, the client, you know, if you'd have blindfolded me and kidnapped me and brought me down here and, and taken the blindfold off, you know, Florida would be like the 47th guess of what state are we in. That's what I was going to say. The original call, like they said, Hey, we think we have this great site for golf. What was it like? Did you have like a predisposition heading into? Well, they said it was a mining site. So I assumed that it was going to be, there was going to be some elevation. I mean, you know, I sort of assume more like a rock quarry. I didn't understand anything about phosphate mining and the scale of what they do, did out here. But, um, you know, I assumed it wasn't going to be flat from the little bit that they told me, but I didn't imagine that it was going to be anything as dramatic as it was. Of course, that call came like right after the financial crisis when nobody was thinking about starting any project. So, so for for us and for Bill Cora, this project was a godsend. I mean, right when nothing else was going on, this big company with a lot of dollars in its pocket that wasn't too concerned, you know, their balance sheet is so big, this is just a rounding error. And it's like, well, God, they're, you know, they've got the money. They, they don't have to worry about spending the money for it. They, they think that now is the right time to build when prices are low. And, and um, so... You know, it was obviously a tremendous opportunity. Uh, they they talked right away about building two golf courses at once, and they interviewed three or four architects, um, including Bill Core and me. And you know, I th we all really wanted the job, 
And, you know, it was funny, you know, they, they kept going back to that idea of using two different sites. And this site that we built the two golf courses on was so much more dramatic than the other ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though they moved dirt all around in the mining process to create the site kind of by accident, um, you know, we treated it like a finished, like, like it was a piece of land in the sand hills. And here's the contours you've got. And, you know, we, we approached it like, we don't have to move a lot of dirt around. Somebody already did a lot way back when, but we can, you know, there's good shapes for golf out here. So we don't have to change too much. Whereas all the other sites we looked at, no, you'd add, you know, you'd have had to move quite a bit of dirt and it still wouldn't have wound up anywhere as dramatic as this. There just wasn't the same amount of elevation change. And, you know, it seemed pretty intuitive to both of us that, that, um, you know, the, the contrast between that kind of site and how everybody feels about what Florida golf is like in general was going to be the big hook for this place Mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah, it's in the middle of Florida and yeah, it's nothing at all like anything else in Florida. So even though it seems crazy, you know, the Florida, you know, Florida needs another golf course. (laughs) No, (laughs) Florida has way too many average golf courses, but this was not an average site for a golf course. And it was pretty obvious that you could do something special with it. How much different was it working for a corporation than your traditional resort developer? A very different, um, you know, I don't, a lot of my clients have been entrepreneurial guys, I guess is the best way to say it. And, you know, not necessarily all super wealthy, you know, everything from hotel owners to farmers to hedge fund tycoons, but mostly guys that started their businesses from scratch. And I think I, maybe I appeal to them a little bit because, you know, I'm not an ex player and they, Mm -hmm. they respect that more than some other people would because they built their businesses from they didn't have a they didn't have an easy way into what they did either um but um you know a corporate client you know usually i'm i i've gotten used to only answering to one person and as long as i maintain that relationship pretty good and make sure that nobody gets in the middle of it um you know, and the communication is clear that we, we always wind up with a good product and everybody's happy, you know, with a, with a corporate client, the fear was, you know, what's the chain of command going to be? Um, and you know, how many people are passing on everything, but, uh, the main guy at mosaic who was pushing for this golf project, the CEO who's retired now was definitely behind it. He was a golfer, but their chief legal counsel and one of the vice presidents was a guy named Rich Mack who showed me around here the first time. Good golfer, and he was clearly going to be very involved with the project, and ultimately he's who Bill and I and and Gil now have all answered to. And even though there is that corporate structure at Mosaic behind the scenes, you know, on the face of it, he's been our client just like Mike Kaiser or Rick Kane or anybody else. And we spent a lot of time with them during the process. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
working with uh, Corin Crenshaw, and this is from Pete O. How much collaboration or joint planning was involved with Corin Crenshaw with them doing the red course and you doing the blue course at the same time? Uh, a lot. This was really a unique project. In so going back to my story about these four different sites, you know. Bill and I both wanted to work on the site that we built on. And Mosaic's original assumption was that there wasn't enough land there for 36 holes. And one of us had to want to work on one of the other sites instead. And I've known Bill for a long, long time. And we both have similar tastes. And we both had our eye on the one particular site. And as much as we like each other, neither one of us really wanted to you know, take the bullet for somebody out for the other guy and say, okay, I'll do the other site, you know, and Rich Mack would ask us questions like, so if he asked, I remember Rich asking me specifically. So if I gave you one of the other sites, do you think you could build as good a course as on this site? You know, and it was like, it was like one of those interview questions from hell that, you know, they just, they're trying to force you into saying what they want to hear. And, you know, and I just, I, I said, well, I'm pretty good, but if, if I took any of those other sites and made it as good as this site here, then you must've hired the wrong guy for this site here. <laughs> Because <laughs> this right should turn out way better than the other ones. And finally, you know, Bill and I were Bill and I were both here at the same time, and and we kind of knew each other well enough to say to each other, you know, let's try to figure out if we can get all thirty six holes on this site, so we don't have to like compete for it or arm wrestle or whatever the hell we're going to have to do. So I went back and tried to lay out 36 holes on the site. Bill had Bill had already laid out a couple of 18-hole routings that he really liked. And I went back and just said, okay, I have to put that aside and see if I can make 36 holes fit. And I did. And then we came down and looked at it and, and compared it to his 18-hole routing. And there were clearly some things that he could do, you know, go in different directions that we really liked that you couldn't do if you tried to get all 36 holes and you just had to have more parallel holes to make them all fit. You know, the, the, the clearest example was what's now the fourth hole on the blue course was on one of Bill's routings and, you know, taking that dramatic step up, you know, it plays uphill and you have to hit up over a, up onto a bluff for the second shot, which is, you know, really unique for Florida and, you know, we couldn't, you couldn't build that hole and fit in as many holes working around the edge of that crater. You know, I had a hole, I had like two parallel holes underneath that big slope. So, um, so what we started doing was working on a 36 hole plan together without, you know, we both agreed that there were some pretty dramatic features. And if you just drew a line through the middle of the site and said, you stay on that side and I'll stay on this side, that neither course would get the variety that you really wanted. One would get the, that, that bowl with the really sharp bluff and then it wouldn't get 
the big lakes over on the far side. Yeah. You know, and so so we tried to figure out what was the best 36-hole plan without deciding who was doing which course. So there was a lot of back and forth. We were here together a couple of times. Uh, you know, Bill would come down for a couple of days and send me a sketch with a few new holes. You know, when we agreed that the 36 holes wouldn't quite fit the way we did, um, Bill went out and walked a part of the ground that what's now the first uh, six holes of the red course. Um, except for the first hole of the red, the rest of that was a pretty flat piece of ground that hadn't been mined yet. Mm -hmm. And so we never really, you know, that wasn't the first, the obvious place to look. And they told us that, well, we're going to mine our way out of there when we do this project. So Bill looked over there and found a couple holes that he liked. And, and that got us, you know, we wound up with about 30 holes on the, on the piece that we thought was the best part of the golf course. And those few holes gave it 30, gave us a way to fit 36 holes in so that it all fit. We even looked at going a little farther into where the black course is now, but we didn't really like that ground as much. It was just, you know, it, it didn't feel like that ground would fit as well with all the other stuff that we were working with. So, um, so after a couple more back and forth, we had, at one point we had the routings where the 13th hole, the 13th green on each course were right together. So you could actually like take the 13 holes off one course and then you had a choice of the, the, the last five holes could fit with the other 13 either way. They are like right really They're close. pretty close together. Yeah. They're not, you know, Bill tweaked the routing, that routing, so it so where they come together is 12 on one course and 13 on the other course now. So we didn't have that choice of how, you know, we had to fit them together a certain way. So one, um, the red and blue thing comes from Bill was like drawing his holes with a, with a red marker over the map that we, it was like a map with an aerial photo on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had to do it in color to see very well. And Bill had always been doing his things in red. So when I drew a map, you know, with these overlapping holes, so you could tell which way it went, I, you know, I drew blue for the other one. And, you know, that wound up being the names for the two courses. But, but we really worked on it together without um, deciding which was which. And then neither one of us wanted to decide, be the one who decided, okay, I'm going to take these holes. And, you know, Rich Mack eventually forced Bill to choose which course he would take because we, we all kept ducking the question. So that's so, so it's you know, as far as I know, that's a unique collaboration. Yeah, uh, you know, Bill even said to Rich Mack pretty early on, he's like, and all the credit in the world to Bill, you know. He said, if I was, if it was another designer that you were, you wanted me to do this with, he said, I'd be more possessive. And, you know, want to keep all the good stuff to myself. But Ben and I have known Tom for a long time. And, you know, we'd like to see the best solution for the whole project. So 
you know, we don't really feel like we're competing with each other and, you know, and we can approach this project this way where, whereas if it was somebody else, you know, our views would be different enough that we don't know if it would work as well. And, you know, we would be more inclined to want to have the best of the land. I, I can't think off the top of my head of any situation that even closely resembles that. With no, I can't either. And I, I, you know, I know a fair bit about the history of golf courses and how <laughs> they came to be, you know, you don't, you know, m- most architects are pretty competitive and, you know, I, it's just, I'm lucky I've known, I've actually known Bill and Ben longer than they've known each other. So, you know, we kind of have a, a little bit different relationship than most architects in the business do. Yeah. I, I, you know, just the only thing that it would be like Pine Valley and Marion with a collaborative approach, but you know, obviously at the end of the day, much different right situation because now, now you know once we decided who was building what um we didn't really collaborate i mean our crews were here at the same time and it was really really fun to go walk over the hill and see what the other guys were doing yeah but you know i had thought about in the beginning about you know, loaning one of my guys to Bill's crew for a little while and taking one of their guys to work with us for a little while. But, you know, when it came time to do it, everybody, everybody's, you know, used to doing their own thing. So, we, you know, we would, we would go have lunch with those guys a bunch of days, but, but we still didn't, didn't, um, you know, didn't want to interfere in the other's process too much, just other than a walk around and see. One of my favorite stories, um, the ninth green of the blue course and the 17th green of the red course are really close together. There's just like one little dune between them. And Bruce happened to ran the project for me. And I were standing on that dune one day and um, Eric Iverson was shaping our ninth green and uh, Jimbo Wright, one of Bill's, longest tenured guys was shaping 17 green on the red and they were working at two entirely different speeds (laughs) jimbo is much more methodical and likes to track in stuff and he goes really slow but he does great work and you know eric is much more quick and about it and you know he gets it really polished but but he does it quicker than almost anybody alive and get that level of detail and Bruce and I were laughing about that. He was trying to take a video <laughs> to show how different it was. I should get that from him if he still got it. Um, but when Jimbo, Jimbo at some point like parked the machine and left and you know went to find Bill somewhere else on the site. And so Bruce and I went over to see the green that he just roughed in. And we both thought it was one of the cooler things we've ever we, we'd ever seen. And, and so Bruce calls him on the cell phone and and says yeah, we just wanted you to know we're over here looking at your 17th green and we think it's really cool, one of the coolest greens we've ever seen. And Jimbo didn't know what to say about that and you know said thanks and hung up. And Bill told me later that Jimbo was standing with him when he got that call and he puts down the phone and he goes, this told me that green, that 17th green they thought was one of the coolest greens they've ever seen. Are they trying to fuck with me? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I I imagine that like once that project kicked off, there was a there was a good competitive streak. You probably you know each of you wanted to outdo the other one. No, know? I I I really did not feel that way at all. Uh-huh. And I I know Bill and Ben pretty well. I can't really imagine that they did either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that may not be true for everybody that works for us. Yeah, I mean, you know we're trying to do something special and we're spending a lot of days at it. So, you know, it was, re- you know, it was really motivating to see somebody else doing really good creative work right next to you. And, and I think the, you know, I'm not taking any credit for it, but I think that the, uh, the red course is one of my favorite courses of bills, bill and bands. Um, I think it gets I think it's more different to their other courses than you know some of their other courses have the same a similar feel to them and this really is different uh, a lot of that's the site of course but mm-hmm. but they did build like two or three really wild greens that you, you rarely see them do and I would guess that has a little that had a little to do with some of the stuff that we were building at the same time. They were just like, okay, we're you know, we can do that. You know, we can do some of that stuff too. But you know, we weren't just trying to compete with each other and uh, outdo the other one. And it you know it, it actually sort of bummed me out at the end. You know, Mike Kaiser weighed in on who won the competition. I I didn't like that. Not just because he thought he liked the red course better, but you know I felt that painted how we collaborated in a false light. And Mike wasn't around for that; he didn't really know. Uh-huh. But you know, I didn't feel with feel good with the way that was characterized because because I really felt like it was all one big project. By far, the most interesting part for me was because we really hadn't picked who who was going to do which holes. I mean, some of the holes on my course are, are holes that built had routed in in his first 18 hole routings before I got involved. Some of the holes on his course are holes that I routed to try to extend the thing and make it 36 holes. Every hole on their course, I had at least looked at and thought to myself, okay, if I was going to build that hole, what would I do? Mm-hmm. And then to see some of the really different things that they did with the same hole in the same place was really fascinating to me. And of course, you know, that's lost on everybody else because they wouldn't, they, they can't visualize how that looked as a raw piece of ground and what was changed about it. But they did some really different things. And I know their favorite hole on our course, or the one they said to me at opening day was the little short par for the 13th. Yeah. And, and I know that a lot of the reason they picked that is because that was the one place that we had to move some dirt and really change what was there because you couldn't the water it was it was it was just like a big flat bluff where the fairway is and then it fell very sharply down into the lake that's over to the left mm-hmm. and it was dangerous if you had a golf cart out here you could drive right off into the alligator <laughs> land and you couldn't and you couldn't see you know you couldn't see the edge of it it was just like you hit it left and then it just goes off the bluff blind and you don't know yeah. what happened blind water is not good so <laughs> you know we cut that side down a lot to make uh-huh. that hole um and it really worked out well but i i know they you know 
I know they thought that was an awkward little corner and they weren't sure what they were going to do with it. And then they're like, Ooh, that turned into a good hole. <laughs> That's uh, it, it, I mean, I've always wondered why they're, I get there. It's so, you know, this unique relationship allowed for the collaboration to really work. Yes. And versus, you know, I've always wanted, cause like you look at what happened with like the golden age of architecture with like the Philadelphia school where those guys regularly collaborated with like ideas and yeah. they would look at each other's courses and provide feedback. Like, and like you look at the results, it's like, holy cow, these are courses that are still great today. And I mean, these are two very fantastic golf courses. Collaboration is a cool thing that usually doesn't get worse with collaboration. No, collaboration is a hard thing. I mean, everybody's yeah. kind of set in their ways a little bit. And yet, I mean, Bill and I both learned from Pete Dye. And, the, you know, the Pete Dye attitude toward construction was anybody out here could have a good idea. So mm -hmm. don't, you know, when somebody, you know, feels strongly about something, hear them out and or let them try to do something and see how it turns out instead of just dismissing them or having your mind already made up that you're going to do something else. And, you know, Bill's team works that way just as much as we do. So, you know, from that perspective, it wasn't really hard to get along and, and have fun with it. Um, but it was, you know, obviously Bill and Ben and I have worked on a couple other projects, quote unquote, together, you know, in Bandon at Barnboogle. Um, but this is the only one where we were doing it at the same time. Yeah. So we got to spend, you know, I got to spend way more time with Bill Core during the course of this project than, than I had up till then as you know, I've known him since 1981, but I, I spend in time with him, having dinner with him, talking to him, you know, I don't ask him so much like exactly what are you thinking there? You know, I, you know. But you know, see, and seeing how he interacts with Ben because they're they're normally very guarded about that around press, even around their clients. Um, but you know, seeing it every day here, we we got a better sense of how they do work um, instead of just guessing at how they do it. So we've talked a little bit about the scale, and Jim Turk has a question about like. You know, the site obviously tr possesses tremendous scale. How important is scale? Uh, your underrated, overrated thing, I'm starting to think that scale is getting overrated because it seems like, you know, the best new award winner is just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every year. The biggest course wins. Like the tallest presidential candidate always wins. The biggest course always wins. And I've gotten to build a lot of big courses, so that hasn't been bad for me. But, you know, there's got to be some upper limit to it. I'm starting to think that we're reaching that upper limit. It's, and maybe maybe some, some courses that I've seen lately have crossed the line. And, I, you know, I feel somewhat responsible. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think, well, Bill and Ben were doing it at the same time I was. You know, and it's really, it's really down to Ben. I mean, you know, I've known Ben since I wrote him a letter when I was in college asking for advice. You know, what should I do to be a golf course architect? What courses should I go see? 
And he's been like a cousin ever since. Not that I see him a lot, but, you know, when I was in college or just out of college and I'd go to a tournament, it was like, oh, just, you know, come on a practice round and walk inside the ropes with me and we'll talk about the golf course. So I did. And, you know, at the same time that I was talking with Ben about the golf course, I'm watching him play practice rounds with uh, David Graham and Seve and all the best players of that generation, you know, watching them from 10 feet away was pretty good education. Um, so, and Ben has always talked about width. I mean, I would say if there's anybody I learned that from, it's him. And I'm sure Bill would say the same thing. You know, Ben grew up in Texas. It's a windy place. Ben was maybe a little bit of an erratic driver. So he appreciated wider golf courses, which I would have too. You know, I'm not, interesting. he's a better driver of the ball than me. He won at Augusta too before when it was still wide. Sure. Um, so, you know, those guys and I have probably been right at the front of changing golf and making it wider. But both of us, you know, them, you know, them even more than me, there is a limit to that, that we don't, you know, we've never thought that 35 yard fairways were wide enough. Yeah. But, you know, Charles Blair McDonald in his book said something like, you know, average with the fair green 45 to 60 yards was his, his idea of ideal. And of course, when you talked about 60 yard fairways in 1980, people looked at you like you had a screw loose. I mean, they were, they were 35 and getting narrower. Um, but you know, we built 60 yard wide fairways and even wider than that at times. And, uh, you know, it gives our courses a different look. It gives people more room to play and find the ball. Uh, that means you can emphasize the contours around the greens a little more to make up for it. And, you know, that's a big part of my style and it's a big part of Bill and Ben's style too. And a lot of that just goes down to Ben having a lot of influence, not just on Bill, but on me. Yeah. There's, there's a pendulum and it, you know, I think it, it was way over on one side in the eighties. And right now I, I, I played a course that I'm like Mr. Width. So I always talk about width, but it might've gone too far. Yeah. I think I've seen a couple that went too far. And, uh, it's, it's but that's the whole balancing act of anything you have to. Right. And you know, one of the big difference, one of the big differences is stream song, um, between the, between red and blue is Bill's course is much tougher test off the tee yeah. than ours. And I think ours is more a second shot course. But a big part of the reason for that is that the red course is basically around the perimeter of the property and the blue course is all in the inside. And so the red course on a lot of holes has like native vegetation on one side. They have like boundary lines. Right. When you, yeah. When you're going, especially when you get to that, the part that goes around the far, I was thinking like the 10, far 11, end of the golf 12. course, like, yeah, nine, everything from after like seven's got the 
the water along the left. And then nine's a little more open, but then 10, 11, 12, 13, all, you know, if you hook it, mm-hmm. lost ball. And that 12, if you slice it into the, into the bushes on the hill, lost ball. Two, three, four are like that also. Yes. On the, on the front nine. So. so that's, you know, that's, that's part of just the way the two courses divided themselves up. You know, they have a lot more potential lost ball country in play than I do. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we, because we were in the middle of the property and we could, you know, I brought a few people out when we were, uh, we finished the, go- we finished our course fully a year before the, before the golf course is open, even, even more than that. And, um, you know, those, those second through fifth holes on Bill's course, the mining operation that went through there and putting it back together took a lot more to everything else was done before mm-hmm. those holes were done. Um, so that like, you know, we, we might've been able to open our course sooner, but there was no sense in, yeah. you know, the, the, the clubhouse wasn't ready. The pro shop wasn't ready. So what I did, you know, the golf show every year, I would take people out and hit balls around the golf course, even though it wasn't, you know, it was kind of in shape to play. And, you know, I took one of the assistant superintendents with me and every time we look for a ball or, or lost a ball, it's like, cut that down, you know, mm-hmm. chop that back. Let's take out those bushes. Let's make this play as, you know, any place that you're likely to lose a ball, let's make it more forgiving. Cause I wanted people to get around the golf course. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a busy resort. You don't want to wait on people looking for their ball. As Bobby Jones famously once wrote, you know, somebody asked him if he, if he minded playing with average golfers. And he said, no, as long as they don't ask me to look for their damn ball. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, I've got a buddy who's like a a 10 handicap and but he's really wild off the green, off the tee. He's like a 25 off the tee. And like, he's like a plus three around the greens. (laughs) It's, it's, it's maddening to watch him play golf, but he, we call it gorse hunting. And like, you know, we go play places that have a lot of high grass around and places we spend all day looking for balls and it's not my ball. It's always this. And it's, it's, uh, that's, that's important. It's, it's very nice to not look for your golf ball. Um, uh, so can Hideki win wants to know about the 11th hole and how much restraint you used in not putting a bunker by the green there. Um, that little stretch of the blue course, 10 and 11 was kind of the flattest. It wasn't really flat. It was tilted, but, but it was like, there were, there was less feature to it than pretty much any other part of the property. Nearly every other hole we had something in the fairway and something in the green to work with. On 10, all we, 10 is a par three. All we had was, you know, you're hitting over where we cut through a belt of trees. So there was some like rough ground out in front of the tee, but the green site was just flat as a, well, tilted left to right, but nothing shaped there, no shapes there to build a natural green. And then 11 was again, tilted left to right the whole way. And the, the only thing that was there was 
you know, the fall off at the back of the green and a couple of little, like, I mean, little small two foot high ridges that were leftovers from the mining operation, just these random little features. The one that's to the right of the green and long grass that's been there since the first day I saw it. And that's why the green is there that and the fall off. Now, 11 was going to be a really long hole, you know, from 10 green to 11 green was like 550 or 600 yards or something like that. And you were going over a crown on the way. So if we made it a par five, you know, you drive it to before the crown and then you wouldn't be able to see the green at all. And mm -hmm. that wasn't very appealing. So we, we made you walk a ways to get to the T and then, so you could drive it to where the crown was if you hit a decent drive and then you see the rest of the hole, even though it's fairly flat. So that's that kind of central bunker in the fairway and you know, where the fairway pinches into a little narrow area on the left and then it's wider on the right is right at that crown. That's the landing area. And then from there to the green, there wasn't much going on at all. And then there were these little contours around the, the, the two little contours on the right of the green and the drop off behind it. And, you know, my thinking on the whole was, um, it's a really long par four and, you know, we don't want to make everybody walk even further to get to the T. So we're going to make, so, you know, it's like 480 from the back tee, but it's like 430 or 440 from the men's tee because we just didn't want to make people walk another 50 yards to get up there farther where they could hit a shorter shot to the green. So, so I, you know, my thought process was kind of, it's the only hole I remember building that I thought this way that, okay, this is such a long hole that we're trying to reward the guy who hits two solid shots and at least gets close to the green. It's better to be up there 20 yards in front of the green and be able to chip at it than being back 60 yards and hitting a pitch. So what can we do with this green shape to make that happen? And, you know, I didn't want to put a bunker at the green. I thought there were some cool contours already. And, you know, if we just made wrinkly ground that the closer you got and the more you could like hit a chip shot and control it, that's, that's all that it would take, you know, was going to be a really hard hole anyway because it's yeah. so long so it didn't really need bunkers and it sure didn't need bunkers 50 yards short that somebody was going to make an eight out of um so we just went with no bunkers around the greens the, that particular green and you know from for variety's sake i think it's a really neat hole you know i guess i thought about it as being restrained but not exactly in that way. It's just something different out here. I think that's one of my favorite holes uh, in golf. It's that I, I just love those. You get such, if you miss that green, you get such unique and interesting shots that you don't see really anywhere else because of those wrinkles and those rumples. It's like you'll get on, you know, you'll hit a really good shot, but you miss a little bit offline and you get this really awkward recovery shot that you don't see. And that's, to me, just it's it, that's it's cool when that happens in golf. Mm -hmm. It's a variety. Um, so, uh, Pete C wants to know if you have a favorite stretch of holes at, on the golf course at at, at Blue. 
have two. I mean, when when you mention Stream Song to me, the first holes that I always think of are four and five, and then you know, kind of in, into six and seven as well. But especially four and five, that that big abrupt slope going up to four green, and then you know you can pull the thing off number five and hit it off the world. Yeah pretty scary um you know of of everything on the site that was my favorite feature and you know while i well well i was never going to be the one to pick which course i did i was really happy when it wound up that i got to work on those two holes even though number four is almost exactly the way bill had laid out a hole and number five is similar to the way he had laid out a hole on one of his original plans. We we kind of twisted number five and play it from a bit of a different angle than than the plan I saw from Bill. But um, number four is, you know, was his idea. Um, and then the other holes are that, you know, that finishing stretch, 15, 16, 17, 18. Really long finishing yeah. holes for you know, compared to anything else that I've done. Um, except for 16, they're, they're downwind quite a bit of the time, so they don't play quite as long as they sound on the scorecard. Um, but a lot of variety. Um, you know, 17. Great putting hazard. The, putting the cross bunkers <laughs> all the way across the fairway was something I really thought hard about. Do I want to do that or do I want to leave a gap in there? Um, and at the end of the day, I was like, shit, we never put the, we never put the full cross bunkers in. Let's do it this time. You know, something that had to do, that had a bit to do with Rich Mack being a really good player. If Rich Mack was a different guy, he would have said no to that. And I would have never asked, I wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. But, but with, you know, Rich's take on the golf courses was it's okay for the, it to be hard in places. And, uh, that had a big influence on that particular hole. And then, and then 18 is really a second shot hole. I mean, it helps to hit a good drive, but you know, if you're on the top of the fairway, there looking down at that green, that's one of my favorite shots on the whole property. Just, you know, the green kind of tilts left to right and it sits under a little contour at the left of it. So there's, there's bunkers on the right and there's all this room out to the left. That's one of my favorite things I can do is just mm -hmm. like leave you like 50 yards of fairway to the left of the green. Hey, hit it out here. It's wide open. And if you hit it out there with the pin on the left side of the green, there's no way to get it close. You're just playing along a lot, a lot flat fairway. And then it drops down into the green and the, you know, whatever kind of shot you hit, it'll get away from you and accelerate off that slope and you'll wind up on the other side of the green. Mm -hmm. So the play is, you know, keep straight on the green. Even though you see all this room to the left, you know, even if you play short of the little mound and bunker that's in front of the green, that's a way better place to be hitting your third shot than long left. Yeah. But nobody looks at it from the fairway and thinks about that until they've until they've gotten themselves over on the left one time and then they realize, ooh, there's no good play from here. It's it's rare too for you to have such a great dramatic like vista of the clubhouse from on like an 18th hole like a, where you're looking down at a clubhouse it's like that famous well hole. stonewall has a great great yeah. 
that does hole too. playing downhill to the clubhouse and you know in in this case the clubhouse is well removed from the property but i've got to tell a story that the clubhouse architect here and the guy who designed the hotel to um has become a good friend and one of the reasons is when we were starting the project he came out and walked with bill and me and we were walking the routing and and it it became obvious after we divided it up that you know my 18th hole was really the only one that was you know playing back in toward the clubhouse the 18th hole for the red course is is on the back side of the clubhouse and there's a huge dune between it and the clubhouse so you can't see the clubhouse at all and neither course comes back to the clubhouse at the ninth hole so really my 18th hole is the only one that you're you're coming right into the clubhouse so you know so i cared more about what it was going to look like and you know he jokingly asked me when we were walking around that day do you ever go back to one of your courses and look at the clubhouse and think ah that's disappointing and i laughed and said all the time and it's true i mean a lot of times i've i have no idea what the clubhouse is really going to look like or exactly where it's going to sit on site because they don't start building it until we're pretty much done you know and they build it while the course is growing in and so there's a lot of times i've gone back and gone oh if they'd only done moved it a little or hadn't set it so far back away from the course or whatever you know the only one that i really liked of my designs was stonewall because that's a building that they rehabbed and it was right there and I could work right up to it and understand exactly where it was and this, you know, this, all the space around the green and between it and the clubhouse. As I understand it, they wanted to get rid of part of it too, right? Yes, that's true. They wanted, <laughs> they wanted to tear down a building. There was a little separate building that was part of the complex that they wanted to tear down. And every time they talk about tearing it down, I couldn't explain. It took me a long time to understand what it was. But I just, you know, I just see it as space. I mean, one of the reasons I got along so well with the clubhouse architect here, um, Albert, is that, you know, we both talk about space and, you know, the feeling of walking into something and how much room you've got around you. And, you know, I don't, a lot of, I think a lot of golf course architects understand that, but they don't talk about it too much. When you talk to a building architect, that's all they think about. Um, and, you know, I do think about it in the out, outdoor space. Um, but yeah, we were really concerned with like, you know, I, I was especially concerned with what we were going to be able to see from the tee because the, the 18th hole plays up over a little bluff and like, you know, I couldn't visualize how high the clubhouse was going to stick up and how much of it I could see from the tee. And I, I knew it had the potential to be really awkward. Once you get up to the top of the hill, you're going to see the whole building, and it was fine. Yeah. But when you're on the tee, you, couldn't see a little you knew you were going to see a little bit, <laughs> and I just couldn't tell how much. And then they decided they were going to build rooms on the second floor, and I'm like, oh, man, it's going to stick. You're going to be looking at the rooms, or you're, going to be, you're just going to see the roof over the top of the fairway, and it could be really weird. Um, and, you know, they even went out and, like, you know, kind of put – a couple of beams up and hung balloons to the elevation so I could see what it looked like. And at the end I asked them to drop the whole thing like four or five feet, just so you were going to see it, but you know, yeah. see as see less of it. And it wound up, 
looking really good. You know, I give them all the credit in the world for working with us on that. That's, uh, that's, uh, hey, there's another collaboration. It's a whole collaboration. Yeah. And, and, and I should say since then, I've been a little more vocal about the clubhouses on my projects and especially at Terra Edie. I think that combination of clubhouse and golf course, that's as good as I, I've ever done and getting the feeling right between the clubhouse and the course. And when I, when I was doing the routing, it was like I had all these holes coming back to the clubhouse site and I was like, uh Oh, this is a really small space for a clubhouse. So I went to Rick Kane, the client. I said, I got to understand how big a clubhouse you want. Cause I've either got this routing figured out where it's going to be perfect. Or if you're going a little bigger than that, it's going to be a mess and it's everything's going to be too tight and I'll have, I'll have to change the routing. Mm -hmm. So he said, I'm going to go interview two architects for the clubhouse. Why didn't you come with me? So, you know, we wound up, we didn't pick which architect he, he chose, but, um, you know, I think because, because I went with him, the architect who wound up doing the clubhouse down there, a guy named Pip Cheshire, who's an architect in Auckland, he sent his son to Barnboogle to like get a feel for what we built there. Mm -hmm. Not so much what the clubhouse they'd done, just the feel of what a rugged natural sand dune course was like. And I think that impressed Rick a lot, but you know, it was great working with them closely. And you know, it's funny, I've, I'm working on a couple of projects now that there's one in California that, you know, the first time I walked into the room to go interview for the job, there's like four famous architects sitting at the dining room table talking about they're going to build like multiple little resorts on this site and they're hiring different guys to build, build their own little separate piece of the project. Um, it's really interesting to get to know those guys and, you know, they think about all the same concepts that we do as golf course architects, but they have a different language for it. Uh -huh. Um, all right. Last question before we get to overrated, underrated car for the course wants to know if you could steal one hole from the red course, which one would it be? I could steal one. <laughs> your, your course, we aren't going to make you get rid of one. Your course would then be 19 holes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's going to be hard to add it in. It's not going to, you're going to have to walk are, way out of your we way. We are going to talk about routing. All right. <laughs> uh, there's two. The seventh hole, the par five, going out with the with the water on the left and the little dune at the right front of the green. You highlight that in the... In yes, the, I, did, the, I did. I did it. In the confidential guide. I did a drawing of it for the confidential guide. That hole... Bill had already routed a hole there on one of his very first plans. It was his first hole on one plan. And all those features were there except for the bunker that's 50 yards short of the green. There's a long kind of waste bunker looking thing short of the green uh, that you, you know, if you're going for the green directly into, you have to hit over that bunker and inside that little mound. And then just like my 18th hole, there's just a ton of short grass out to the right if you don't want to try to do that. Yeah. But then you go over there and the little mound is yeah, right in your way. <laughs> um, but that was all there. Uh -huh. And, you know, and Bill just had that hole fit perfectly into that slot. And it's like, that's a pretty good hole. I wish I'd come up with that. And, I, you know, I didn't get that. He, he gave me some great holes. He didn't give me that one. Um, 
The other one is the ninth hole, which at the beginning I didn't think was one of the better holes on that routing. Um, you know, there was room for the big fairway bunkers going up the right side. I mean, some of that land had already been gouged out. So the, you know, the, the basis of the bunkers was already there. They tinkered with the edges of them and how they come into play, but the green site just sat up and then like the second visit I made during construction, they had shaped the ninth green and that's one of the most interesting greens I've ever seen anybody build. And that was not there. <laughs> that whole right side of that and the way you can play a shot up into the left and let it feed back down to the right. It's a little like, like a green I built at high point that you have that feature of it that to get to one pin placement, you play towards something else and let it feed off the side. But um, it's a tremendous green and it's like, you know, and I, I don't know who, I assume Bill drew that and one of his guys shaped it, but I never really asked who. All I know for sure is that I saw it before Ben had seen it because when Ben showed up on that trip, I said, I want to go walk this with you. I want to I see what you think of this green because <laughs> I know you haven't seen it yet. And uh, he liked it just as much as I did. So that, that, that one goes to Bill and whoever shaped it and not to Ben. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's a very cool short par four. That green is wild. I remember the first time I got up there, I was like, Oh my God, I missed, I missed left. I was dead. Yep. Uh, uh, so overrated, underrated Polk County and golf. <laughs> hmm. Well, Polk County didn't have a whole lot of golf going for it before Streamsong. Now it does. Um, I think this whole place is underrated. You know, when we were building it, Bill was just coming off doing Lost Farm. Dave Axland, who came here in the beginning to help plan the project, had just been working for a year and a half at Barnboogle and um, and Bill was really excited to have Dave come here the first time to see what he thought of the land because you know Barnboogle was obviously a great site but that's how highly we thought of this site yeah that we were comparing it to places like that that's, that's um, what Keith Reb told me too and you know there's everybody's got an opinion on which of the three is the best golf course and you know decision pretty early on was oh the red beat out the blue mike kaiser decided that so everybody in the press has to follow his lead they can't be disagreeing with him um it, and you know what? now the black course is you know the 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 ivory every review i've seen Oh, it's the best of the three. Of course, they have to say that. Well, you know, it's the new, also, it's the new, latest and greatest. There's a recency bias, and like every everybody makes these judgments after one. Oh yeah, trip or, like and I like people ask me like the same thing, and as I've done this longer, I feel like it's more and more unfair to actually judge something the first time after one visit around. 
Sure, but that's the, you know, that's the nature of our business, too. It doesn't really bother me that much. I mean, it bothers me that everybody makes it out to be a bigger distinction than it is. You know, if you, if, if you pull 100 people, it's like 55 to 45, or maybe 60-40, until they've been told that the red is the one that's higher ranked and then it gets more tilted than that. But, but, you know, obviously there's still a lot of people that, that pick the blue over the red and you know, I don't care so much about that. You know, what I do know is if the blue course is the third best course at stream song, I'm comfortable with that because I know it's a really good golf course and it's like, you know, there's a lot of golf resort. There's a lot of famous golf resorts in the world that wish their third golf course was that good. Yeah. And that's what I'll take away from it. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I learned in Myrtle beach, the, like the second project I ever did the legends Heathland course. It was one of three. It's, it's a three course complex. Yeah. And the client, you know, I always thought it was the best of the three. But the client had absolutely no incentive to promote that idea. They wanted all three courses to be busy. He didn't want one to be better than the others. He didn't want, you know, he didn't want to start pricing them differently. And then, you know, that, that just reinforces it. And then people want to pay the expense, play the expensive one even, even more. And they won't go to the other ones. So it's in the best interest of your client if it's a hung jury and nobody can decide what's the best course, that's a lot of the success of abandoned dunes. And that's going to be a lot of the success of this place is that there's three really good courses and you know, there's a pretty good debate about which is the best one. I think it's, it, it's, uh, it changes with who, the, who you ask too. It's all different oh, sure. for the golf, like what golfer, like, you know, some people like, a a beginner will lose a lot more golf balls on the red course than your course. Yes. And yes, I think, you know, I think it's probably a, a general truism of the difference between Bill and Ben's style and mine. And a little of it has to do with how good a player Ben is. And, you know, I played golf with Bill. Bill is an underrated, very good golfer. <laughs> he doesn't play much, but he's really good. You don't play at Wake Forest if you're not good. No. It's true. <laughs> true. And he hasn't lost it. Um, but, I, you know, low handicappers are more inclined to think their courses are superior to mine. High handicappers, I might come closer to winning the field on that. Um and if I am, there's there's more high handicappers than low handicappers, so I'm okay with that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we want people to love all the golf courses here. And, and I really, you know, I really like the red course. I have a lot of fun playing the red course. So it doesn't bother me a bit to, you know, lose out in the rankings on that one and... You know, I've done a couple other projects with Bill and Ben and, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I believe rankings stink anyway, so it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. You know, I rated both courses the same in 
the confidential guide, and that was not a political call at all. That's really the way I feel about them. They're mm-hmm. they're not interchangeable. They're different, but it's the same level of quality, and they're both. Yeah. And they're both. I think they're both really good. I think they're they're probably one of the best cases for oceans are overrated in terms of rankings. You're not going to, I'm not arguing with it because I've benefited from that as much as anybody alive, but you know, big bodies of water are certainly overrated. I can think of a few courses that are very highly rated that are on oceans and I don't, you know, I have no interest in, and that's, you know, this could, this is a whole different podcast is rankings, but like, you know, like, the red and the blue course are courses that I want to keep playing golf at. Mm-hmm. And like that should, that should be like what matters the most. Like, do you want to keep playing when you get to the 17th hole? Do you get like, yes, I get a feeling of sadness when I play really good golf courses and I get near that. And that is something that happens on these courses. So that's what should be, you know, that's, I don't know. That's that is all I need to know about a course and how good it is. So, but uh, all right, we're uh, we're done here. Stream song blue. Everybody should go check out. It's uh, and stream song in general. It's an awesome spot. But uh, see you next right. time. See ya. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.